Well, as the war in Ukraine broke out more than five months ago, many of us, myself included, turned to social media for information, particularly what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. Things were moving so fast that uh, some of those social media accounts, these are people we've interviewed on the show, have been invaluable when it came to uh, spreading information or at least sharing what was happening. I think particularly a woman named Maria Avdieva in Kharkiv, who we've spoken to a few times on this show, has gone on to do all kinds of other work uh, for other networks worldwide, but uh, who really told the story of Kharkiv. She sort of became um, the de facto correspondent in a city that very few people could reach at that point, a city that was being shelled by Russia each and every night, uh, which is still under attack these days. Um, and just the invaluable serves that she provided, mostly through the videos that she took and posted onto Twitter. So some accounts attracted new followers by the tens of thousands because so many people were interested in finding out what was going on. And many of them, again, like Maria Abdievas, appeared to be great, perfectly reliable, but there was no real way of knowing except to check their credentials, look out for what they were saying, if anything didn't ring true. Of course, information is critical in this war. It has been called the first social media war, although that isn't necessarily true. Well, back in March, a new account popped up that was pretty interesting. It was called Canadian Ukraine One or Canadian Ukrainian Volunteer. I followed it. The user claimed to be joining the front lines of the Ukrainian efforts against the Russian invasion. Um, quote, fighting the Russian invader along the mikhailov kherson axis, read the bio, glory to Ukraine. His follower account skyrocketed, or his follower account skyrocketed, the account uh, posting about war missions, uh, to about 118, 120,000 followers or so. But he was posting stuff about war missions, posting, posing in uniform, holding weapons, and he did this for months. Or they did this. We don't even know who it was exactly. Then others in the uh, community started to question the account. And Twitter users identified a string of holes in the alleged fighter's post, believing that the person was posing with a fake rifle, fake helmet, or helmet and magazines, even using photos of others. And then earlier this month, after being challenged, the account suddenly disappeared. Now, because this person was called Canadian-Ukrainian volunteer, uh, I was fascinated. What happened to it? Where did it go? And then there was some reporting that was going on. I've been following some of the claims that perhaps this account wasn't what it was said it was. Uh, it was tracked down to somewhere in Ontario. We don't know much more about it than that. Leo Schwartz, though, is a Mexico-based, Mexico City-based reporter at Rest of World reporting on global tech stories. And he's dug into this story to try to find out more about it. He, too, was fascinated by it. And he joins me now. Uh, Leo Schwartz, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell me how how did you how did you come upon this this particular account and and when did it appear? I've been looking into this strange world of OSINT for a while. OSINT is open source intelligence, uh, which has become this world of amateur researchers, mostly on Twitter, who use open source information like Google Maps or TikTok to track conflict zones and figure out what's happening on them. Essentially, doing the work of intelligence agencies, uh, but doing it in public for free. Uh, so I've been following that community for a while. Uh, they've become increasingly mainstream during the Ukraine war specifically uh, and had done a couple of stories and saw this account pop up. Uh, this account is not an OSINT account like the other ones, but does some of the similar work like going on Telegram and finding footage that Ukrainian soldiers had posted and posting some analysis about it himself. Um, like a lot of the accounts, he was anonymous. Uh, it was 
a Canadian man who claimed to be a volunteer fighter in Ukraine and quickly amassed 100,000 followers over the course of about a month. Um, while he was increasing in popularity, uh, a lot of the other OSINT accounts on Twitter began becoming suspect, um, suspecting that he wasn't actually who he said he was. And yeah. uh, that was the controversy that I'd seen and began to look into a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I confess, I followed him. You know, I mean, when in those early days of the Ukraine war, there was so much information coming at us that it was hard to differentiate between who, you know, who was exactly, you know, who said who was saying that they were exactly what they were. Um, so, what kind of information? You mentioned it briefly. What kind of information was this person posting, and what were they claiming to be? I mean, you, a soldier volunteering, fighting on the front lines. I gather. Yeah. So they were doing a combination of two things. A lot of their content, like I mentioned, was this type of open source intelligence work where they would take videos from Telegram, which is a messaging platform frequently used by Ukrainian soldiers, and post it on Twitter and add some bit of analysis. They would also post photos and videos that they had claimed to take from the front lines of Ukraine. That was what a lot of people called foul on because it became increasingly clear that he wasn't the one taking those photos or videos, or they were so ostentatious or so unbelievable that there was no way that he'd actually taken them posting things like having killed a uh, Russian soldier with a tomahawk or doing a behind the lines mission on bicycles. And I think a lot of people saw those claims and were like this, there's no way this is actually true. Yeah, I was going to say that what what raised alarm bells, because I know there was some of that more obvious stuff, but there are also other little hints that people start to dissect in his actual photos, for instance, or their photos. I don't know. We don't know if it's a he or a she. that, that suggested that the person wasn't who they said they were. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I The interesting thing about the world of OSINT is these are people, like I said, a lot of them are pseudonymous or anonymous, but they spend all their day on Twitter, other social media platforms, finding this information and figuring out what it actually means. So this isn't the type of people that you want to get on the wrong side of. Uh, when they began suspecting that this account um, called Canadian Ukrainian One Uh, was fake, they began to dissect the images and the videos and also do other things to try and prove that they weren't who they said they were. Um, One smaller OSINT account even was able to basically send a web page to this account that they clicked on and it showed the IP address uh, and showed that they were actually in Ontario, Canada, not in Ukraine. So there were little things like that that began to prove that the account was not only not doing what it claimed, but wasn't likely even in Ukraine in the first place. What was the purpose of the account? Because uh, I understand that there was very little attempt to say, use it fraudulently. I mean, at least to fundraise or for personal uh, profit. It was really, it seemed mostly for personal glory. Yeah, it's an interesting question and really goes to the core of this amateur community on social media. So it first rose during the Syrian civil war and has increased in prominence ever since. Now you're seeing professionalized outfits doing it. Bellingcat, the publication is one example of that. But even the New York Times and the Washington Post now have what they call visual forensics teams, which are basically doing this OSINT work. So from amateurs in the community that I spoke to, I think a lot of people expect that if they're posting this type of work, they might get hired by a professional outlet. Some of them post links for fundraising and can make money off of it. And some of them, like this account, seem to really just be doing it for internet points. I think they just like the validation and getting 100,000 followers and lots of likes on their tweets. Um, 
they weren't really engaging in trying to raise money or do anything of that nature. It really seems like they just like the attention. Did people ever try to reach out to this individual to figure out who they were or why they were doing it? Yeah. So the account that had tracked down their IP address also identified an individual that he suspected was behind the account. I did reach out to that individual. I'm not going to name them on this program just because we haven't confirmed that that is the person. But unfortunately, we still don't know what their motivations were, why they why they're really doing this. So what happened when it started to, to when the jig was up, essentially, when people started to figure out this person wasn't who they said they were, and we're starting to confront the person with these uh, with these suspe- uh, suspicions, what happened to the account? Yeah, so like I said, the amateur OSINT world is not a community that you want to mess with. I think that the Canadian-Ukrainian account kept attracting more and more of these people who really spend their day debunking fake information or debunking real information, and he made the enemies of the wrong the wrong people. Uh, and was also very quick to block them, which I think just had the effect of bringing more and more people basically dissecting all the information on the account, trying to figure out what's going on. What was really the downfall was on July 1st, uh, which I believe was Canada Day, coincidentally, uh, the account posted images of the arms that they were using. uh, And another OSIN account pointed out that they were in fact airsoft rifles or airsoft pistols. So I think that was the final nail in the coffin. And that day, Canadian-Ukrainian one sadly left Twitter. Uh, I think some of the people in the OSIN world said that he fell in the battle for Tim Hortons. There was lots of good Canadian related jokes to it. Uh, but that was that was the end of the jig. When it, the fact is, I, I know that there wasn't much fundraising going on. It didn't seem like the person was using this for personal financial gain, at least. Uh, but in the article that you wrote, you do discuss not just what you found, but what you found out from others about the dangers of this, because it can seem quite, um, you know, it can seem like a bit of a victimless crime to some extent, if you look at what happened in this case. But uh, when there is misinformation out there, it does create problems. Yeah, I think there's a few negative consequences of it. One is that this world of amateur OSINT has really become a valuable service to a lot of professional journalists and researchers. Uh, So a lot of what they're doing is taking content from a platform like Telegram and basically dissecting it and figuring out what it means. For those professional researchers, if you now have a lot of noise happening, so basically there's a lot of people spreading information around, it makes it much more difficult to identify the original source of where it came from And it can make research more difficult for researchers at places like Bellingcat or Storyful, which are these professional outlets that do OSINT type work. The other is, of course, just spreading disinformation and misinformation. I think more and more average people are getting their information about what's happening in conflict zones from Twitter and from these accounts that have hundreds of thousands of followers. And if they're spreading incorrect information about what's happening in something like the war in Ukraine, then obviously that's polluting the information ecosystem with, uh, with false knowledge, which, which is overall a harmful trend. One of the things that I remember clearly when Bellingcat first sort of emerged, it was mainly about the chemical weapons attacks in Syria, where they did a lot of uh, open source intelligence to try and disprove that the Syrians, what the Syrians were saying, that they weren't using chemical weapons. But the one that really sticks out to me is uh, MH17, the shooting down of the uh, Malaysian air jet over Ukraine uh, back in 2014 as well, where, you know, there's a lot of denials, but they were using this open source information to sort of prove, or at least try to prove that in fact it had been 
a Russian supplied uh, a mil- a missile system that had brought it down. And I guess part of the problem is that a lot of people were trying to challenge that because it went against a narrative that that other powers were trying to sell. So if it starts to get cloudy, that just gives more ammunition to those who try to disprove this kind of work as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people have written about how the war in Ukraine has really turned into an information war uh, on a lot of fronts between Russia and Ukraine. And a lot of this is happening on social media, on Twitter, on Telegram, uh, to try and change public narratives and public opinion, which can in turn affect things like military funding. So in a lot of ways, I think people have called this the first social media war, which a a lot of uh, people closely following different conflict zones over the past decade have rightly pointed out isn't really the case. But at the same time, I think one of the front lines for this war is certainly on social media. So in writing all this and in diving into the story, what, what did you what did you learn? What are you taking away from it? And will you continue to pursue it? Definitely. I mean, I think it's a really fascinating intersection between war and influencer culture. Uh, again, the role of social media in how we consume news and information is increasing every day. And with the war in Ukraine, you've seen these amateur OSINT accounts or accounts like Canadian Ukrainian One gain hundreds of thousands of followers and become one of the primary ways that we're, we're consuming information as newsreaders. Um, at the same time, this is intersecting with influencer culture that you're seeing on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. So you always have to look at what the motivations for these accounts are, why they're doing it, and then what the downstream effects of that are. Uh, and you know, when you're thinking about the next bathing suit you want to buy and getting recommendations from an influencer on Instagram, that's one thing. But when you're getting your news on the war in Ukraine and getting that from a different type of influencer, maybe that has more grave consequences. Uh, so I think it's a it's a fascinating new trend that's emerging. Because one ha- would have to suspect that that this Canadian Ukraine one is by no means alone. Yeah, definitely. And I've gotten that feedback after we published the article of people saying either they have different accounts or there's other accounts doing something similar. So it's certainly not an isolated incident. Leo Schwartz, thanks so much. Fascinating topic. I look forward to seeing your follow-ups on it. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it.